0: Hello and welcome. My name is Tanai and I help women become confident with themselves and their sexuality and shed the pressure to be the good girl. For the past 10 years, I've worked with all kinds of sex and relationship experts to heal what I thought was commitment phobia, only to find out that there's actually no such thing. This podcast is my opportunity to debunk commitment phobia, so drop all of your preconceived notions and tune in to hear what I've learned along my journey about what it takes for people to create authentic and intimate connections. This is Commitment folk Coming out stories have always left a really big impact on me. Whenever I read coming out stories or watch it in movies or TV shows, it's this the kind of stories that move me to tears the most because I think it's just so courageous how people share this massive truth about themselves in a world where they know that the people that they love the most might not accept them. And it's not always the case, but when it is, I just think it's the biggest act of courage that one can can really do because yeah, you're, you're honoring who you are and, um, And choosing to live your truth over pleasing everybody else, which is a topic that I'm so passionate about because that's, you know, what really this podcast is all about. It's how to speak your truth and how to be yourself and how to share your feelings and how to get to know yourself so that you can be authentic with the people around you and authentic in the way that you live. So I am really excited today. To talk to a friend of a friend. So my last guest was Cesar Barajas. And, you know, he, he's, um, he has a lot of friends in the LGBTQ community. So I asked him, you know, do you have any friends who'd be willing to share a little bit about their journey coming out and, um, growing up in a world where it may not have been totally acceptable to be openly gay? So I'm really excited to speak to Harry Guy, who my friend Caesar knows from his dancing career. And Harry has accomplished so much in his lifetime, from being um, on an LGBTQ advisory board for his governor, to starting his own dance company, to being a gay rights activist. So without a doubt, there's going to be tons of inspirational nuggets and... I'm excited to talk about courage and what it takes to speak out for what you believe in and for who you really are. Amazing. So hi, Harry. Thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. Harry, yeah, Harry's a very impressive man. He's a gay rights activist and a professional dancer. He's been on his mayor's LGBTQ advisory board Zorna is, is the founder and creative director of the nonprofit Urban Souls Dance Company, which is a modern dance company that specializes in exploring African American culture, heritage, and expression. Just incredible. You were also the first black gay marshal for pride. Yep. So cool. We the first, first and black
1: gay man. So so we've had we had okay. two um, black women that were Grand marshalling in Houston, but first I was the first man to do so.
0: Wow! I know I can't wait to hear all about that. And you've now been um, married for four years with a man that you were in partnership with for fourteen years. Correct. Amazing, beautiful. So, I just want to dive right in. You know, you've you've accomplished all these amazing things, and it seems like even in high school you were already a leader and you were already standing up for what you believed in. Growing up, did you always have that drive to have your voice be heard and for you to be seen?
1: Um, I think so. I came from a really um, vibrant community and a really vibrant family that really pushed, you know, creativity, really pushed leadership, you know, really thought about um, pushing us in a way where we'd be thinking about what we wanted to do in the world. And so leadership was something that was that was definitely normal in in the in the settings that I grew up in, and so I always felt comfortable kind of being out in front and talking, and out in front and leading, um, whether if it was assignments my family gave me, or things I did at church, um, or things I did at school. So I've been pretty comfortable with being out in front for a while.
0: Mm. That's amazing. And was there anyone in your family in particular who who gave you words of you know who gave you specific words of that that really inspired you to do that?
1: Um, Well, I was adopted and raised by my grandmother. um, And so I spent a great deal of time under her leadership and her guidance. And so she was the person who really um, always signed me up for things, always wanted me to be a part of, you know, various things in the community and really, really always um, supported the fact that I I wanted to be a part of these things. So it was really her leadership that gave me, you know, the strength and the power that I needed to really be out in front um, and just gave me that sign of approval to try and do those things.
0: Wow. So, were you, th- like, was it just a natural ability to be fearless, or was there ever any any butterflies or any fear of um, of putting yourself out there?
1: Oh, definitely. There's always fear. I think there's still even fear today. I don't think that um, that ever goes away. You know, totally. So yeah. So um, the, I had the the regular um, you know, I had the regular kind of fear of finding who I was, finding my voice, even with a very supportive family and a very supportive community, you know, the world is not always the same. School is not always the same. So there were always mechanisms where, you know, I still had to navigate places where I felt incredibly unsafe and it was not as easy as it was in the places that I gravitated to. So, yeah, I've, I've always had to kind of grapple with the fear of kind of finding myself plus the fear of being out in front of people who, who I did not have relationships with.
0: Hmm. Yeah, and so I read that for you, it was it was pretty welcomed in your family when you came out.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So my family is is one of those families who kind of believed in the power of people. Um, and so you know, um, our community, uh, as an example, beyond just coming out being gay, you know, our community was really, really um, set back because of the crack epidemic because of the AIDS epidemic. It's a very small town. Um, So it was not uncommon to see people that were vulnerable and to see people who were suffering all the time up and down the streets. Um, The street that I lived on was a kind of very high traffic street because it's right by our neighborhood park. Um, And so the way that my family treated people that were vulnerable, people who were without, to me, signaled that there was a high level of humanity within my family. And, And the push to respect all people I learned at a very early age. So to me, that gave me the cues to know, you know, that my family would be okay with whoever I was and whatever I decided to do.
0: Wow. That's incredible. Yeah, I know that that's not very common.
1: Yeah, no, it it really isn't. And and I, I give a lot of credit to my family because they were able to kind of give me that foundation, um, of support and humanity. And I, I've really tried to, to kind of navigate the world exactly how they did in, in terms of understanding that everybody deserves respect. Everybody deserves a chance because I know what it did for me. You know, it really gave me a bridge, um, a, a bridge to walk on in terms of finding myself that a lot of my friends and people that I've met in community, unfortunately, did not get. And so I know that I'm incredibly grateful for that start.
0: Mm, yeah, you mentioned you know other people not having that. What did you see in your friends, um, in terms of how they experience um learning about themselves and figuring out who they were?
1: Definitely a wide variety of of responses. You know, I've definitely seen families who were as um, respectful and as welcoming and affirming as mine, and you know, but on you know the heartbreaking things I've also experienced very up close families who completely turned their backs on people after they came out, you know, people who forced them to go talk to the preacher, you know, people who tried to violently get them to 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 choose another path. Um, so, you know, the whole gambit of responsive, I've seen up close and personal.
0: Mm, yeah. And hearing, you, you know, having this family and all these messages about, you know, the importance of people and vulnerability, how did that shape your idea of what it is to be a man? Because, you know, it's, it's very different messages and than, than what are you know the common messages of like don't show your feelings and and show that you're tough and that you you know and a lot of a lot of people interpret that as like putting other people down as opposed to you who you are talking about lifting people up, yeah, so yeah, how did that shape your idea of a man?
1: Um what a great question. So for me, I had a mix of you know very hyper masculine people in my family growing up and in my community but I also really had some great examples of really tender men. And so my grandfather, um, of course, who adopted me with my grandmother and raised me, was not very hyper-masculine. You know, he worked on cars, he did very things that were, are normally seen to be manly things, but he was also, you know, he talked a lot. And so, you know, in the dialogue, it was very clear that it was okay to express yourself and to, to share your feelings. I remember one time um, he made a replica of a Coca-Cola vending machine for me for a school project, which was way over the top for what what it (laughs) called for, right? Everyone else was doing like poster boards and things like this, but he built like this vending machine and we decorated it with the Coca-Cola logo. And just his attention to detail and him expressing how it had to be pretty, like it had to look really, really, you know, it had to be beautiful. It couldn't just be nicely made, it had to be pretty. And there was something kind of in that delicacy that I took on that, okay, it's okay for him um, to do it, so it's okay for me to do it. And then there was a man across the street who my grandmother actually kind of made forced a friendship between me and him because um, he also was a very tender person. I think she kind of recognized very early on that I needed type of man around me that would really kind of give me wings to be the person I was going to be. It was very clear from an early age that I was very feminine in my kind of natural expression. And so uh Mr. Ellis and I were like best friends. He was, you know, uh, elderly, you know, when I met him and I was young, you know, but we hung out, we did movies, you know, he, he, he supported me dancing and singing. He would videotape me performing all the time, which really gave me a signal that the way that I was, was okay with men. And, you know, and that being very honest that that was not every man because, you know, I did have uncles who I felt were not exactly proud of who I was, but I also felt that because I had public allies, like I had people who were on my side publicly, that it would make naysayers kind of the outcast. And so I could feel my uncles who were more hyper-masculine kind of filtering and not being kind of violent toward me or not being kind of expressive in that or forcing that on me. Because really they would have stood out as the bad guy, you know? And so that's why it's really important for people to not just be allies behind closed doors, but to publicly be allies. Because sometimes it does shape how someone else responds and treats someone.
0: That's such a good point. You know, I know a lot of people get upset when being an ally becomes trendy, like it becomes a part of a TV show. But at the same time, like through history, it's the natural way that things become a norm, like through culture through celebrities you know it's almost like uh like part of it right yeah, it's, yeah. It, it's part of the process of making something a norm
1: absolutely that support you know um a lot of people you know for instance you know we're 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 learning a lot and seeing a lot more about trans people um and a lot of people just don't have access to be in space with a trans person so I know that by me sharing all the time you know my trans friends and how we engage and how you know I see them as regular people. And I try my best to, you know, not to just prop up that they're trans, but to just be in friendship and community with them as a normal, regular thing. And I know by that example, people are learning about trans people. You know what I mean? Because that, I have a lot of trans friends. And so uh, I know the ins and outs of what it means to be trans. But for people who, in their mind, thinks they have never encountered a trans person, and in most cases, they probably have not just don't know that the person is trans because they don't feel safe telling them, but just by seeing my public display of allyship, or what I, or what I'm aiming to make as allyship, I know that that makes a difference.
0: Mm, yeah, absolutely. I see it in my life too. So, yeah, absolutely. Okay, so so yeah. Not, it, w- is there anything that really stands out about your coming out story to your family, or was it just like a conversation, like, "Hey, this is me." Okay, cool. We, you know, this is already something that everyone knew and.
1: Yeah. So people, you know, I like to say that people come out all the time. They come out many times and it's not just like a one event um, thing because you come out to people in your family at different times. You come out at work, you come out, you know, at, 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 in your communities and your communities change. So you're kind of always coming out in some kind of way. You know, people are always learning about who you are as you go through life. But I think my what I frame as my coming out story is with my biological mom. Um, who, even though I was adopted and raised by my grandparents, she was still a part of, very much so a part of my life as my mother. Um, I frame that as my coming out story because it's it's the one where I actually was asked, was I gay? And I said, yes. And so um, that story to me, what stands out in that story to me is that my mother actually drove the conversation. She facilitated it. You know, she prepared for it. Um, She was having a party and with her friends, as she often did on Fridays, um, and she told me she had something to ask me on that specific day, which I pretty much knew that it probably was going to be that because what else would she ask me? Mm. Um, and, you know, so she privately asked me, and I, I said, you know, if, if I was gay and I said yes. And then, you know, she told me that she loved me and that, you know, she, you know, she, of course, she always knew, but she just really wanted to give me an opportunity to say it out loud because she knew how important it was to not really hide things. Um, She was not a hide things kind of person. Um, and so she just really wanted to just get it out, even though it's kind of assumed. And so I really appreciated that. And we went back into the party and her friends kind of read our smiles and knew that they I, I could tell that her friends knew what we were going to talk about. And so they were very excited. and The party continued. Um, and we just it, it was embedded inside of a, a party that she was having with her friends. And so it was a great, great coming out story because it was with com- it was with friends. It was with family. It was with community. And what I like most about it is it was, even though it was, it was my story, it was led by, you know, my mother who knew that I probably would take a lot longer to bring it up just because, Mm
0: um, yeah, why, why, why was, why was that?
1: I think it's just a hard conversation to have, regardless of what you think the response is. Like I, there's, there was no doubt in my mind that my family would be, have a great response to me coming out but it's still very hard. And so that even speaks to how hard it is for people who don't know or who people who know for sure they're going to get a bad response. I think the fear is there regardless. It's just a really big thing to say out loud. Um, And so, you know, and so I think that she knew that. She knew that beyond how great our, our family was and how great our relationship was beyond that, that this was just a big thing to say. And so I think that she helped along by facilitating, you know, the room for, and making it a really, really soft and tender room um, for me to come out to.
0: Yeah, absolutely. You know, I love that you said that we're coming out all the time because everyone's always coming out, right? There's always these like things we keep in the closet that we're not showing and it's so scary to talk about them. Yeah. 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 So how did it feel to speak those words, like say it out loud? And did that impact how you were communicating with other people?
1: Um, it felt it felt good and freeing and liberating to say it out loud to her. I mean, of course, I had been saying it out loud to the people you know around me because I was I had found my I had found my gay community and I had found the black gay community in Houston. So I had I had already had a community where I was really really fully recognizing who I was. Um, but it did feel good to say it out loud to her, and it felt liberating and freeing. Um, and I think it just really continued uh, the journey that I was already on with what I had known to be true growing up, which was that, you know, people want to be seen and heard. People want to be, people want to feel validated, you know, and people deserve, you know, a soft place to talk. People deserve tenderness. And so all those kind of core principles that have been uh, constantly reaffirmed by my family, that moment was no different um, in that.
0: Mm. Yeah. Huge. Yeah. And um, and then in in high school, can you tell us a little bit about those like first leadership positions that you started to take on?
1: Oh, yeah. So my very first leadership position was president of the youth choir at my church. So my church is highly responsible for both my creativity and we did. I had the kind of church that had all kind of creative opportunities. And so we did lots of big performances, shows um, for Christmas and Easter and put a lot into the costuming and stage design. And so I knew creativity and found my way through, through creativity at church. Um. So that was really my first leadership opportunity. Was in church. Um. And then in high school, um, I was always in stuff in high school. I was in everything: drama, choir. I was mascot. I was uh, president of the band. In Future Teachers of America, I was president. So I was one of those people who was highly, highly active in lots of things. Class president. I was the first homecoming king at my high school. Um. So I, I leadership was
0: right. And you. And you. Um, vouch for that, right? Like, do you created that as like you you asked for for the prom king? Oh,
1: absolutely. Um, I'm yeah, and I didn't. And to be very honest, I didn't ask for it because I thought I would win because I would normally uh, football players win homecoming king, right? Um, and I I my school was a state winning football school, so we it was all about sports was it was all about sports, and so in my mind, I thought that. You know, I had people in my mind that I thought would win. So I really thought that the popular football people would win. But I did think that it was not fair that that, that we only had a homecoming queen. And when I went to the principals and the counselors and told them that this was something that I um, thought we should have, they said, OK, we'll think about it. And they thought about it and came back and said, you know, that they uh, that they would do it. And they put it out there. And then I I was on the slate to be voted. And I was like, well, I wasn't. Even. OK, that part I didn't get <laughs> So I was already busy with that. Wow. Homecoming was another big deal for me in a separate way, and so I wasn't thinking about that. But yeah, and so I ended up winning, and so I was the first one, and, I, and that was really, really exciting.
0: So you were highly involved, and now you're, um, and now you're nominated for this. So it's like something else that that you're um that you're a part of. Did you have any role models at the time that were like leaders for you to look up to?
1: You know, when I was, um, I guess what maybe middle school, there was a preacher who moved to our town, Reverend Andrews, from Opaloosa, Louisiana. And this man, he came into our community and just rocked the community. Like he was one of those people who was just, who just young people just gravitated to him. He was, I mean, he was just an amazing man. He really was. And he came and he started doing like community plays and he started this youth choir that was highly successful and just everyone was in it. <laughs> I mean, like everyone. And so I I was like, whoa. I was highly, highly inspired by him. I was just, I mean, I, I still remember the very first time I encountered him and just thinking, who is this man? And so he he really inspired me just to soar, you know, just to Just to have fun with life and to do great things, and so he was—he's one that kind of stands out as as someone um, who really inspired me. And I think my sixth grade art teacher really inspired me because he was also a preacher. I I have a a a thing for people in leadership at church. He was also a preacher, but he was our art teacher, and I was deathly afraid of this man. He was the meanest teacher at school, and I'm (laughs) like, how how do you teach art in your mean? Um, but I was so afraid, and I was just praying that I would not get art. And I got art, and I was in his class, and it was brutal for me because I was so afraid of him. And but what he did was he really pushed me to just go out in front. Like he would always say, "Why do you hide in the back of the class? Sit in the front." Like he, I remember. I remember us going back and forth about me sitting in the front for so much. And, and, you know, he was just like, you know, I think a lot of the, you know, the issues you have with your peers are because you are hiding. You need to be in the front. And I, I didn't really parallel it with all the other things until, of course, a lot later in life. But I was so upset that he would make me do that. And before you know it, I was in front and I did feel more comfortable and it wasn't that bad. And so he was also someone who just kind of kind of inspired me to step out in front.
0: Mm. Wow, and it's someone that you were scared of. So not only were you stepping out of the front, but you were stepping out of the front for someone that really intimidated you.
1: Yeah, for sure, for sure. Yeah, he was very intimidating, and and um, I'm I'm just really glad that I was. I, and I fought to get out of his class when I first got in. I, <laughs> I I was in the office every day saying, I don't think I'm supposed to be in art, you know. Wow. But you know, they made me stay the course because of adults who care about you know best. And um, and I'm glad that I did. I'm really glad that I did.
0: Mm, Yeah. What was your biggest fear in being in that class? Do you remember?
1: Shame. He was a shame-based teacher. Like he really embarrassed people. He really got a kick out of, I mean, he thought it was fun and games and I'm sure he had a method, but he had a shame-based practice that was just, that didn't sit well with me because it was completely opposite of what I, my environment I grew up in. It was, we didn't have a shame-based culture. In, in my family and in my community. And so I was just definitely afraid of that because I didn't understand why would someone do that? How is this enjoyable?
0: Mm-hmm. And then what did you learn
1: from that? Um, I think I really saw that he really did have good intentions. I still do, I still today don't agree with a shame-based practice for, for kids or for anyone, really. Um, I know that shame could be extremely powerful and detrimental. And so um, what I learned was I still believe that. Um, but also <laughs> I think I saw that his intentions were pure. His intentions were good. And it really was just the way he knew, you know. And and, and um, unfortunately, out of that kind of practice, some pe- people are harmed. Um, I think what what kept me from being harmed in situations like that is that I had a foundation that was really solid and knew that that was not how all people were. Um, so for me, I think that, you know, that, that that's what I learned coming out of that
0: mm what a yeah that's what a great lesson, especially like becoming an activist afterwards for sure, and understanding that yeah because it, growing up in a bubble i I can really relate like I grew up in a family that was also um very accepting of of everything, um never really talked about judgments of other people or putting people down, so it's it's a bubble, you know you kind of you kind of aren't exposed to the way people are elsewhere, so it can be a rude wake up call, so that seems like for sure. Sure. Yeah, like an opening there. So after high school, what led you to pursue a dancing career? I'm just interested in that too.
1: Yeah, well, I've always danced. Um, that is that has been my thing for a very long time. I was the dancing person in my family and they they absolutely loved it. You know, they supported it and they pumped me up and, and thought that it was a great thing. And so, um, when I was in a uh, mascot in high school, I was the first like dancing mascot. Like I I danced at every game. I got, you know, halftime features with, with, with the band um, because I, I chose that dancing would be the way I wanted to be mascot. And so dancing is just, I don't remember, I can't remember a time I didn't dance. And so when I got to college, I kind of learned that there were dance classes in a way that you could take them all the time and you could could really get good at this and you can learn, uh, you know, codified techniques. And so I think that, you know, that that's where I saw uh, dance, but that's where I saw men dancing. That's where I saw Black men dancing and taking classes and performing. And when I saw the Modern Dance Company at, um, at Prairie View A&M University, I thought, wow, I, I feel like that's where I'm supposed to be. And so I just had to be there. I just felt like it made sense for all the things that I had been doing and it was uh, it would be a great opportunity for me to learn. And so I, I went and auditioned and got into um, the Modern Dance Company on campus. And Really, it was just a fast track to this is what I'm supposed to be doing. Like this is all of this has led me to this place. And this is I don't know what I'm supposed to do next, but I do know that right. what I'm supposed to be doing.
0: So cool. And what was your relationship life at the time? Like, what was your love life at the time?
1: Oh, in college? Yeah. Oh, in college. You know, I don't know that we know enough about ourselves to truly know even what kind of love we want. And what kind of love we'll give. And so I think it was all over the place, honestly.
0: Um, <laughs> yeah. Also, of course.
1: also with being gay, I think that I mean, this is nineteen ninety-five. So being gay at that time, there's still so much hiding that you have to do, not just with yourself, but within people that you might be interested in. There's just so much hiding going on that it's hard to find love through through that. And so I think that for me college was a lot of fun. You know, there was a lot of sex probably. But I think that I I didn't have like a a relationship just yet. Um, I think I you know I, I met people out and 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 it felt very like middle school dating, calling each other, staying on the phone, things like that. But nothing geared toward like a sustainable um, relationship wasn't my experience with dating when I was in college.
0: Mm, yeah, and is was it something that impacted you, or were you focused? Like, were you so focused on your career and and we we're, ha- we're just having fun?
1: For me, I have a very different like concept of relationships. So for me, like intimate relationships, I have intimacy in all of my relationships, and I think that that is again it's the way I grew up, you know, like my family says, "I love you all the time, we kiss each other, you know, you know deeply, like it's it's a very physical and intimate um kind of shebang. like I remember when I first started taking people home from college they'd be like wow your family says i love you a lot and i'm like yeah mm,
0: really? <laughs> we love each
1: other a lot right um so it's just a highly intimate kind of situation and so i see intimate relationships as all of my relationships that i that i cultivate and maintain so for me i've never really prioritized a partner it's never been like you know a lot of people say like this is my everything and this is the person that completes me and it's way up here and everyone else is kind of laterally here. And I just think they're all kind of mixed in with each other. So I don't know. I, 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 It's all intermingled for me in a very horizontal way. I don't really see it as like a hierarchical, like my relationship. And so that being said, you know, being in a relationship is not like a high priority for me. I'll do it if I meet a person. I don't say no to it. I'm very open to it and I give my all to it. And it, I'm a hundred percent in if I am choosing to be in a relationship but I'm completely okay if I'm not too.
0: Hmm, that's interesting. Yeah, I was wondering because you know there is so much ease and 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 um like it was so na It's been so natural for you to be out in groups and out with people. So I was wondering, like, what about those one-on-one relationships? So that that you know that's interesting to hear.
1: Yeah, my one-on-one relationships is. I mean, they've all been a journey, and you know, I'm I'm actually in a crazy journey right now where. I don't know if it was the pandemic or what has happened, but I'm in like shifts in a lot of relationships. Mm. Or like, you know, come to Jesus meetings in a lot of relationships. And I'm like, wow, like who organized this? Why is this happening in several relationships wow. at one time? Not bad stuff, but just, you know, how do we make these better type conversations? And and who's dropped the ball? And 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 you know, the being in a situation like a pandemic has made all of us kind of reimagine what our who we are. At as people, but also the things around us, right? And I think that neglect has shown up in a way because um, how could you give like you normally give to people in a situation like a pandemic, right? And so I think people have felt neglected and so it's brought a lot of conversations to the forefront. But yeah, my one-on-one relationships are very important to me. I want them to be real and meaningful. Um, It's kind of one of the reasons I don't really like social media is because everything is very performative Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. I'm not really a performative kind of person with relationships. You know, I'm very much so eye-to-eye kind of person living in a, you know, group chat kind of society. And so Mm -hmm. it's difficult to kind of, you know, get people to understand, like, I am the person in my friend group chat. There are six of us who has a very, very interactive relationship individually with everyone in the group chat. Like the group chat is not the only way I communicate with them. And I think that I'm the only person that does that. And I've really pushed them to do that too, because group chats are performative. You know, it is about jokes. It is about, you know, you know, you don't feel comfortable. You don't feel exactly comfortable Equally with everyone in there, so you're some things you won't say to that group that you would say with the person one on one. So I really push my friends to have individual one on one, you know, relationships with each other, um, and that's really important to me.
0: Mm, I love that. Yeah, I completely completely resonate. Um, and so, so back to back to dancing and and figuring out that that this is your passion. Then how did you come to see that? All of these sort of, like, how did you then come to combine the activism with your passion for the arts?
1: Well, once I decided that I wanted to do dance, um, I went to the Ailey School in New York and was highly inspired by the institution. Did not necessarily like New York, and I knew I wanted to have a similar feeling back in Texas. And so um, when I came back to Houston, I helped to found two dance companies who were Black gay men like myself um, in each instance who wanted to start a dance company and I helped them dance with them. Um, And in both instances, I just felt like my voice of what I wanted to do artistically wasn't being satisfied in those companies. And so I said, well, I'll start my own company and then I'll get to say exactly what I wanna say, how I wanna say it. So in starting my company, I knew that I wanted a dance company that was very, very real. And that really danced about topics that were Important to the Black community, so the very first um, debut that I made with the company was about mass incarceration. Is how I launched the company um, to everyone was a piece that was highly inspired by my uncle who was in car- incarcerated at the time. We had a great relationship. Actually, my uncle in who was in prison most of my life um, was the first person I actually came out to by letter, and so. He oh that gosh. so, like I was saying earlier, you come out many times before I even yeah. told my mom. I had already told my uncle because we had a pin pal relationship the entire time he I've been growing up. Um, it, he's been in jail as much as I can remember, and so he would always share with me the ins and outs about being in jail. And so, his story was always just really, really special to me because of the fact that I did get to come out to him. He's another man who was very tender. Um, with me. Mm. And so
0: um, Uh, what did, what, what are some qualities about him that you really take on for yourself?
1: um, Well, first of all, the dancing, like people always told me when I was little, oh my God, you dance just like your uncle Mike, or you got dancing from your uncle Mike. And so um, he was a dancer too. And so that was kind of my first connection to him. Um, But he also used to walk me to school every day when I was in preschool. And we would, we built, we built a really strong relationship from that. Um, I, and, and so, um, some of the, that's some of the things that I took, you know, took from, of course he, he ended up in prison. So he wasn't like a, you know, a model for all things, but mm-hmm. there was still some very good qualities there that, that I was able to see and to, to extract out of a very uh, complicated person.
0: Mm-hmm. So coming out to him through a letter.
1: Yeah. So coming out to him through, you know, I felt comfortable of course, because A, he's away, <laughs> you know? Right. And, you know, sometimes it feels good to write things down. But even in that, I kind of hesitated. I danced around it, you know, really much so in that it wasn't very clear at first. And then he responded to my letter and said, hey, I think you're dancing around this. You know, I think you're trying to tell me that you're gay and that's okay. You know, Mm. and so, um, yeah, that that was just, you know, because, you know, he was important to me and I was really, really interested in the way he was telling me, you know, things showed up for him where he was. I was, um, I, I really was thinking about mass incarceration, so that's how I launched the company. I wanted to do a piece that was dedicated to him, but it really addressed just black men in prison. Period. And so, you know, that was in two thousand four, and so that's a strong way to say this is who I want to be as an artist. This is who I want my company to be. This is what we will represent. Um, and so, I just kind of have always, from day one, said this will be a company that is about activism. Hmm.
0: And and you said that having the company be very real was really important to you. Mm -hmm. What were you seeing at the time that was different from that?
1: Yeah. At the time it was very clear to me that racism showed up in the dance community in a way that was really um, clear and that it also was something that at that time was definitely not talked about. And so um, for me, you know, I don't like things that are unspoken and I don't, You know, I just think that it's better to say things, it's better to do things. Um, So I knew the importance of not falling into that. You know, I could have easily started an abstract dance company that just did, you know, works about colors and animals and, you know, and clouds, um, which is there's nothing wrong with that. But the reason I didn't want to do that is because I knew I would be quickly accepted by the dance community, um, which was not threatened by a black man who was not doing works that were. Black, right, and so I chose my path, you know I it was a very intentional decision that I didn't want to do that that I wanted to be I wanted to create something for that centered black people you know with an audience full of black people. I really made that my focus
0: mm, beautiful, yeah, Caesar actually shared with me that he was in one he he was in one of your performances, I think, and he said he was the only man that wasn't black but felt so comfortable and safe and welcomed by
1: yeah, you. Uh, yeah. Caesar has, um, uh, Caesar has navigated, you know, black things. He went to a HBCU and he's in a, right. you know, a black fraternity. He's navigated black people for a long time in, in, in a way that, <laughs> you know, is heightened because he's like in, you know, things that were created for black people. Right. Right.
0: And exactly. Like,
1: <laughs> you know, so he, he gets to experience it very close up, but yeah. And, and I've always wanted to do that too, because, you know, of who I was raised to be was very, very, you know, welcoming, and and so I, I, that's who I am, and so even in my company, even though it centers blackness, I've always had people who are non-black that gravitated to, you know, a, a welcoming space and wanted to be a part. I think that you know the 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 flip side of that is I'm sure there are people who wanted to be a part and felt well I don't know if I can go to that because it's a black company and did not do enough to figure out if that was a space for them because it is a very limiting idea to some people. Now, once people come, they get like, oh, this is a space for everyone. It just centers Blackness. Um, you you learn that once you get there. But yeah, I've always had people who were not Black come and dance in my company and they're more than welcome to be there. You know, and they all get it. They all understand that although this is centering, you know, Black experiences, anyone could be here.
0: Hmm, yeah. What are some, I, I'm curious, what are some, reflections from your dancers that really impacted you in terms of what it meant for them?
1: You know, several of my dancers went to college for dance and had degrees in dance, but didn't really get to dance on stage in a really high level until they found Urban Souls, which is my dance company. And so because of the way that racism shows up in dance, a lot of Black dancers that go to schools for dance, it's not going to be an HBCU that has a dance program, you're going to be at a white institution. And, you know, the way that dance, the way that racism shows up in dance, those dancers are often not given opportunities in college. And so you can go your whole college career and not have really choreographed a lot, not have really danced a lot. So what I learned is I was getting a lot of dancers who were really, really damaged from a um, esteem perspective, right? Like they really had lost kind of the touch of, of really their greatness because they just, We're in an environment that didn't really give them wings. And so I was helping to kind of rehabilitate that in a lot of ways, which is not what I exactly signed up to do. But it became a part of the process, right? It became a part of the gig because I said I wanted to work with black dancers. This is how black dancers were showing up. And so I could not then say you need to be ready to get on stage and do your best when you meet me if I understood where they came from. And so lots of the comments were just that they felt seen and validated once they got there, that they got to dance, you know, at a level that they had always dreamed of um, that they had not gotten yet. But one of my most proud moments, you know, with the company is that I I found a person who at the time was a young man in the gay club who was just a mover beyond belief. And I told him at the time you should come take my dance class. Like, you are amazing. And he was like, oh, no, I don't do classes. You know, I don't do the organized dance. This is just for fun. And I said, I promise you, if you just come to my class, I just have a feeling that you'll love it. You know, and finally, this person who was a he at the time came to class as a Black gay man and just fell in love with the space and danced with me for years. And, you know, this person is now transitioned into female. And one day, She made a post and just said that one of the things she loved about her life is that she got an opportunity to dance in a space where I never asked her to be anything other than herself. She felt completely seen, completely respected, and that was allowed to just do her. And for a trans person to say, You got it right, that is huge to me because we mess up so much as cisgender. Men, you know, we mess up so much with with trans people and women. And so to really hear someone just on their own say, I felt seen, I felt safe. I felt validated. Like that was like huge to me. And that is not a dance accolade, but that is a people accolade. And it is probably my greatest honor, honestly.
0: Wow. I I just kept thinking about your story of growing up with your family and and growing up in this community that allowed you to be you, and now you're able to really provide that for other people.
1: Yeah, I was I was working on a documentary that asked a lot of questions about my upbringing and kind of was was kind of tracing where I've been, and you know, and the producer said, "Oh my God, I just realized that you're trying to recreate like the community you grew up in in every space you go in," and I had never thought about that like it just never dawned on me honestly and i said you know what you're right you are so right um so yeah uh now that he said it i'm i'm I, I i go back and i'm like yeah that is so true i try the feeling the welcoming the 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 validation of people you know i try to do that in every space that i'm in
0: yeah it, it yeah that's exactly what i what i was hearing when you were telling me that it's it you know what, what really stands out to me in your story is courage
1: mm hmm
0: and I was wondering if this is something that, as a leader and, um, you know, as, as a leader in in the dance company and in the organizations that you've been in, if that's something that you focus on tr- teaching and transmitting to others.
1: Oh, absolutely. You know, in urban solos, dances used to get so frustrating with me because oftentimes I lead with humanity, right? And so sometimes, People would get roles who were just, I in my spirit, I just felt they need this right now versus, you know, this is the deeper person who deserves all the solos. You know, I would be like, oh, my God, like, you know, if you just had this opportunity, it would just be right for the moment. And so I would pick kind of by energy and by, you know, and, and things like that and really push that I would rather a room full of people who are easy to work with versus people who just look good on stage. And that frustrates people because they have been brought up in a environment that just says, if you dance good, you're good. You know, you are, you come in, you knock out the choreography, you're great. But I'm like, yeah, but what happens if you're in a duet and you hate each other or you disrespect each other and now you don't want to be in rehearsal with each other? Like, I want the room to be good. I want the dance to be good too. But for me, the room was the important thing. And that's frustrating to dancers a lot because It it makes them check who they are as people, which is not something they're used to. You know, it makes them a lot of, oh my goodness, I have tons of stories of dancers who, I mean, they just got the personal work they needed. Not for me, they do it when you create the space, they do it with each other, right? But there are some dancers who just learned what they needed to be working on personally and did that work because of that room. And so that is just, so special to me. You know, it's really, really special to me because I know that they'll go on. I know that it matters in every other room. You know, yes, it, you, you did it for this, but now you're going to be a better parent. You're going to be a better partner. You're going to be a better, you know, coworker at your jobs, you know, because you learned that it's something that people were afraid to tell you or just didn't, it, it wasn't the right space or people just ignored it. And this is a space where your humanity is important. So either you will work on it or you won't work and you won't be here. But if you're here, you'll work on it. And so that has been frustrating but I, I still believe in it. It's just, you know, I just think it's important.
0: Yeah. And, and just like you said, you know, that how you work in the room, you're going to show up in the rest of your life. But also like you said, like the self-esteem piece was so apparent in the dancers. And, and I just remember I read this book blank that talks about, you know, how, how quickly we make decisions and how quickly we're impacted. And it talks about how students, um, black students who had to tick off that they were Black before taking their SATs mm-hmm. had lower scores wow. than Black students that didn't tick off that they were Black before taking the SATs.
1: Yeah. And I, I, I tell people this all the time. Like just the, those types of that mental piece. Right. Just thinking about, oh, I'm Black before just thinking about that sends you on a spiral to think about other things. It really does. And so I talk a lot about how um, how that affects people. Yeah. And and that, you know, and and even in a room. And so we talk a lot about black centered rooms. And I tell people if a white person is in that room, it changes everything because now I'm thinking about a lot of other stuff. Right. I'm thinking about racism now. I'm thinking about all these things that I wouldn't be thinking about if it was just a black room. And so I know we get a lot of flack for like specific rooms that are really specific in who they want in the room and people feel excluded. But there's a reason that those rooms are created.
0: Yeah, I I totally get what you mean, because, you know, I focus on on coaching women and I create groups of women and a lot of men are like, you know, it would be so cool to be part of this conversation. But also women have so many ideas of what it is to speak in front of a man. And
1: yeah, it completely shifts the room. It completely changes the possibilities. Right. And that, you know, if you allow someone who if you allow anyone who a person would feel unsafe around, they're going to respond differently in that room. You know, and so yeah, I think that's very important. But I get that that speaks to when you have to check that box now you're thinking about, oh, I'm black. Oh, okay, well what what have they said about black people? Okay, what does that mean for me taking this test? Like I can see how that would send you on a thought process that could, you know, really not make you do your best.
0: Right. Absolutely. Yeah, the, the mind is, is so powerful. Um, so I read about this this photo that you put up with your husband. Um it's the two of you. And it, it became viral, right? That's that's what happened. A lot of a lot of teens and a lot of young people were messaging you on Twitter how you know how they never thought they would see two black men married and like so out and proud. What was that experience like?
1: Oh my goodness. Um so yeah, so me and my husband, I think just by nature of me doing LGBTQ activism in Houston, people were very interested in our wedding. And um, I had never thought about that honestly. And so when you know when I shared, you know, the photo uh, of us kind of the leaving, you know, the, the moment when you're leaving out, you know, our theme was uh, crowns found. And so we crowned each other with these actual crowns in our wedding, which my husband absolutely fought to the day of the wedding, because um, he kept saying, it's not a show. And I'm like, yes, it is. Um, and so he he finally did it. But it was just a beautiful picture, right? Of two black men walking down the aisle holding hands with crowns on, and and so I just thought it was a really nice. It's my favorite wedding photo, so I just shared it in that way. And then a local, uh, my friend who writes for the Houston Chronicle, was like, "Oh, we should profile your wedding." And I'm like, "Cool, digital profile, not a big deal. I've done it for other things. Cool." Well, I thought it was a digital profile, and come to find out, it was a huge spread in the print version of the Chronicle that I did not even know about. So someone took the photo and said you're in the Chronicle today. I said, yeah, the digital blah, blah, blah. They're like, no, I'm flipping through. And they showed it to me. It was huge. So it got picked up by Inside Edition. It got picked up by a lot of people picked up the story um, because we met in our fraternity. It is a gay fraternity, but I think people like the idea of a male-centered space meeting your intimate partner in a male-centered space, even though it's gay. To, to them, it sounded like a really good story. So the story went viral. And we were just like, what is happening? (laughs) You know, this is, you know, our little relationship is very modest to us. But I, you know, once it went viral, yeah, I started to get a lot of messages from young people who were like, this gives me hope. Um, I never thought I would see this. Um, You know, you guys make me so proud, you know, of course, relationship goals and which I have a lot of thoughts around. Um, But I'll take it for that photo, for the moment. I'll stay in the moment with it. But um, yeah, so that part really, and and the fact that these were young, like 13, 14-year-olds who were saying, I've never seen this, and this makes me, you know, feel like I'll have this one day. Because literally, in my vows, I talked about like what I would tell my thirteen-year-old self, you know. And so it's it was just a full circle moment that I literally mm. talked about that at the wedding. And then yeah,
0: what what was it? What what would you tell your thirteen-year-old?
1: That if you just hang in there, you will find love. Is kind of the mm. summation of com- kind of what I said. You know, right now yeah. it feels like you're alone, and there's nobody in the world is like this except. Mm. <laughs> But if you hang in there, you know you will. You will know love because you will meet Adrian, who is my husband. And so, uh, how
0: did you guys meet?
1: We met in our fraternity. I was assigned to him as his big brother, and you know it's a gay fraternity, but we also have a really big rule about dating, especially when you're a big brother to someone because it's a mentor capacity. So, um, never even thought about him in that way, honestly. You know, and and once he got in the organization, he expressed that he was.
0: So he asked, he told me that you're interested in, and you're like, all right.
1: Yeah, I was. I, I said, all right, but I was kind of hesitant because he's nine years younger than me. And so I was like, okay, you know, what am I going to do with someone nine years younger than me? Um, but I said, okay. And we went on a date and we talked for hours and I was like, okay, this feels okay. We'll try it out. And we did. And we're still together.
0: Hmm. What has been, I know this is like such a cliche question, but what has been, one of the things that have really kept you two together, that um, you know, like it's funny, you said, you know, you have a lot of thoughts about people being like, relationship goals. What are those things that you actually consider relationship goals in your relationship?
1: Well, I, I think it's okay to say that people are relationship goals, but I think that you have to know the details, right? It can't be from a picture. Like people always say, "How long have you been together?" right? And they use that as relationship goals. They'll never say, you know, how, how many times have you broken each other's heart? You know, what, what's the deep kind of things that have happened? You know, what does that 14 years look like outside of making it to 14? So for me, relationship goals is tied up in a lot of the details. And I get it. You know, longevity is kind of like the goal. But for me, you know, the journey is the goal. One of the things that we committed to very early on is we said, if it's safe and if it's healthy, that we would never walk away, as long as it's safe and healthy, right? So it would take, you know, something really mon- monumental to make us say, this can't work. Um, and, and that hasn't happened yet. You know, everything that, that has come about is something we could talk through, something we could talk about. And then, so we just decided that we would always be together, you know, you know, unless it was unsafe, unless it was unhealthy.
0: and. What what are some of those things that you practice in your relationship that you want to inspire young people to um, practice in their relationships?
1: Individualism, it, it is so important. I remember one time I was buying a um an anniversary card, and the the woman who checked me out said, "Oh my God, it's your anniversary! You know what? Give me some relationship advice." And I said, "Focus on yourself." She was like, "What?" <laughs> I said, focus on yourself. I said, if you are everything you want to be as a person, you will be the best partner you can be. But if you are lacking for yourself in any way, it's going to show up in your relationship. And so I'm just one of those people who believes that what is important is that we are good to ourselves and our partners are just there to watch that unfold, right? As opposed to, we do everything together. We we complete each other. I don't believe that. I just believe. You know we're on individual journeys, and if you're lucky, you have someone to witness that journey with you. Mm.
0: Wow, that's really beautiful. What What would you like, um, in particular? Like, I mean, I guess it could be as specific as Black gay men, but what do you want to be a, like? What are you a stand for in your relationship for for Black gay men or Black gay teens or just anyone? You know, anyone who's struggling to to be themselves out in um in public and in the communities?
1: Yeah. You know, I just think we all we all have a yearning to belong. You know, where we find that belonging can be in a partner. It can be in an organization. You know, it could be in activism. But we all want to belong. And I just say, you know, we don't compartmentalize how we are in those belongings, right? So I can't be an amazing partner. And then in meetings, I'm an asshole, right? I had to be good in all those places because it's really who I am. And if you are one good person, that's why I said individualism. If you are just a good person and you make yourself proud, it shows up in every relationship, including your marriage, including your courtship. Right. Because that's just who you are. I think we're taught to like be a certain kind of person in a relationship. Be a certain kind of person at work. Be a certain kind of person with your kids. And I just I just think that that's exhausting, you know, that trying to be figure out where how I want to be good with all these different things. That's exhausting. So I, I really just say, you know, the, the goal is really for you to cultivate the person you want to be and just make sure it, it shows up in every intimate relationship you have. It doesn't have to be different. Like go on dates with everybody. Go on dates with people that you lead. Go on dates with people that you do activism with. Go on dates with your sister. Right. Like. All these relationships require consistent intimacy, right? They all they all require the same things. The only thing that's different is sex. That's the only thing that's different, right? But you know, I tell my I told you know one of my friends that I'm talking to right now, I'm like, we don't date, we don't do anything. You know, our friendship has become nothing but text. That's the same thing I would say to my husband, right? I require the same level of engagement with any intimate relationship I'm in. So I can't push that enough. It's all about you. And that feels weird. It's like, oh, relationship advice is all about me. I'm like, it is like, you know, focus on you. When you're good, your partner feels it. They get to reap the benefit of you being good. Trust me, when you're not good, they feel it too, <laughs> you know?
0: Yeah, wow. You know, that it's like kind of what you're telling your dancers. Like, if you're not good, then it shows on the on the stage. It shows in the room. It shows in the, you know, in the audience. Like, everyone can feel it. The way you are in one area of your life is the way you are in all areas of your life.
1: Yeah, and and so you know, I pull that curtain back. Now I get it. I'm like, oh, okay, and that's why I think that's why we fail from room to room because we're trying to recreate a new me, you know, a the right me for this room. And you you don't even bring the good things. Like you think that's just for over there, and it's like no, all this crosses over. Like use it, you know. If you're bad in one room, I promise you, you're probably bad in all of them. <laughs> just that room where it's clear.
0: Yeah. Yeah, it's, almost, it's like what you said. You have to just keep telling your coming out story. Like, you have to keep coming out in, in several ways. Yeah, in many ways. As opposed to... Right, like, as opposed to keep figuring out who you need to be for these people. It's actually, like, keep coming out. Keep being more of yourself.
1: Yeah, for sure.
0: Yeah. Uh, beautiful note to end on. I, I wish I... Honestly, I could speak to you for, like, three hours.
1: Uh, well, I've been doing this. You know, I really... I really like being able to talk about a multitude of things because you know, who you are determines who you are everywhere, right? And so kind of knowing those foundational things are important to how you show up intimately. You don't just show up intimately, right? It, it's, it's, it's a, it comes through all of you. And so knowing all the pieces is really important. So I like a conversation that addresses this from a very nuanced kind of way is that it is about who you are in totality. Right, you know, and that's kind of it's kind of bad news because it's like, oh my God, it's so much to consider. Right, that's a lot, you know. You know, you just want to think about the the when you think about marriage and, and being and commit commitment. When you think about commitment or or being afraid of commitment, you know, you think it's a singular thing. Like, what's the thing that's making me not want to commit? And then you find out that oh, yes. it might be thirty things. Exactly, you know, like, <laughs> it might be a lot of things. It's not just this. This one kind of thing. And so I, that's why I, I love that this talked on so many different things because my my journey to commitment is by way of all these influences. You know, I can't, I, if I'm going to commit to something, I have to do it wholeheartedly because of my community, right? That taught me to do this well, because of my family who taught me to do this well, right? And so all of these things working together um, are why my commitments mean a lot
0: mm-hmm. to me, right? Absolutely. So inspiring. Thank you so much for sharing your story. How can my listeners keep up with you or connect with you in any way?
1: Sure. So on most things, I am either Harrison guy or Mr. Harrison guy. And you can find me there. If you want to find more about Urban Souls, we're at Urban Souls um, on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and we have some exciting projects coming up.
0: Awesome. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for tuning in and listening to this episode of Commitment-Phobe. If this episode left an impact on you, please share with friends, family, loved ones, ex-lovers, the people in your life who you think would benefit from listening to these conversations. If you're curious about the kind of work that I do as an intuitive coach, head on over to my website, www.taniamillgram.com, where you can learn more about what I do with my one-on-one coaching clients, group coaching programs, and you can set up a discovery call with me to see how I can be of support to you. You could also follow me on Instagram on my handle at Tanai Milgram. I'm always posting content about what I'm up to and new insights, new learnings that I'm getting along my journey. And please head over to iTunes and leave a five-star review if you like what you heard. So together we can start changing the conversation we're having about intimacy and commitments. Thanks again for tuning in and I'll see you next week.